Welcome to the Next Level Brands podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast, brought to you as always by the crew at nextlevelbrands.com. If you have a growing firm in food, beverage, or health and wellness, please check out the services offered by Next Level Brands. Courses, workshops, founder coaching, fractional marketing and sales resources, and a whole lot more. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's. Take your brand to the next level with Next Level Brands, what you need to know to grow. Well, I'm Steve Clear. Today, we're welcoming Ryan Lewenden to the program. Now, Ryan is a partner in Genusi Lewenden, which is a law firm. It's a leading legal firm. It represents entrepreneurs and innovators who have shaped the consumer product space. In fact, they represent a body armor sports drinks and its sale to Coke for $5.6 billion, that's with a B, folks, which is the largest acquisition Coke has completed in 130 years of doing business. Before starting the firm, Ryan was attorney for Vitamin Water in its early days and its sale to Coke for over $4 billion. Other notable clients he's represented include disruptive brands such as RX Bar, Oatly, and Vita Coco. Today, we're going to talk a lot about the legal aspects of growing a CPG brand. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. This is, uh, yeah, I've been, look, I've been looking forward to doing this. You know, a couple of things. I, I, I come from a family of lawyers, although I didn't catch the disease. But the, the one thing that surprises me, I think, the most of anything is the reticence of entrepreneurs and maybe just CPG entrepreneurs, because that's who I work with. To want to involve legal assistance, usually until there's a problem. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's always one of those things. Yes, we're talking about, yes, we need, we need you guys when we're doing our $5 billion acquisition thing. Got it. But I'm a solopreneur, I'm a founder, I've got a small team. And, you know, man, I've I I'm worried enough about business licenses without getting into other stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but where I wanted to start was sort of your journey. How did you get to be you know, a, a CPG as your vertical within law, and how did you get into law to begin with? Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot, Steve. Well, so you know, I come from a family of lawyers as well, but I, I guess I did get bit by the, by the disease. So my family you know, does a different type of law. My, my father had a practice in New Haven, and you know, he's a trust in the states, a lawyer, and you know, he's a big advocate for like Medicare and Medicaid, and you know, worked with the government on like sort of rewriting the bills there in Connecticut. But I got in the CPG. Uh, I played sports my whole life. I ran track, which you know, is, is, I don't, I don't, you don't play track, you run it, but it's, right, you know, right. it's still yeah, a sport. Yeah. Right. But I, but I did that in high school and part of college. And, you know, when I was done running track, I ended up getting a job in a bar in New Orleans at Tulane where I went to school <laughs> and I ended up running the thing my senior year. And when I was running it and when I was doing like the orders for the week, I started to notice how people were buying less Miller Lite. I was ordering less Miller Lite because people were buying less of it and more Dixie and a beta amber. And people were buying like less absolute and more flavored vodkas and whatnot. And then I started to see how like people would sort of come into the bar on the weeks off and sort of be pitching like their new sort of products that they were coming up with locally. And then people at the bar would be asking me for it. And I started to realize that like 
at least for New Orleans, people's change, people's tastes were really starting to change and fraction. And people didn't want what was like mass marketed anymore. They wanted more artisanal offerings. They wanted offerings that were sort of had more of a brand story that they could sort of relate to a little bit more. Right. And, you know, I just, I started to see, and this is sort of late nineties, early two thousands. Right. And I ended up, I ended up going to law school in Brooklyn and I, I graduated and I was working for a general firm where where Nick Giannuzzi, who's now my partner, was a partner. And we had sort of a general corporate department and they had a client called Vitamin Water, which was something that I recognized from, you know, when I was playing sports at Tulane. And, you know, I was like, you know what, I want to work on that. Right. And, and Nick and I developed a rapport working on that, on that, on that client. Like, I think one of the first deals I worked on at a law school was like 50 cents deal where he had his own equity in the brand and like he had his own flavor. And, you know, people said he made $300 million off it when, when the company sold and everything. But, you know, I got into to working with this company, Vitamin Water. And, you know, a, a couple of years later, they sold it to Coke for $4.7 billion. Yeah. And after that sale, first of all, it was just a phenomenal sale. I mean, that when that company sold, you know, the company was like one of the first companies out, CPG companies to use like the tech model where, you know, they kind of paid all the employees under market, but they gave everybody equity. And I yeah. think when that company sold, they made, you know, over a hundred millionaires, right? So like over a hundred people's lives were like totally changed from that one brand. And, you know, after doing that sale, we, Nick and I realized that there was this sort of big hole in the market for people that were helping CPG brands and founders, you know, like in the early 2000s, if you wanted to work for in food and beverage, maybe you wanted to work for Coke or Pepsi or Unilever or like one of the funds, right. but nobody really wanted to work for founders. And, you know, we went to our first Expo East in 2008 in Boston yeah. and we kind of went around with our business cards, which looked like every other lawyer's business cards at the time. And we're like, Hey, you know, we're lawyers. Do you need a lawyer? And people were like, well, I'm not getting sued. So, you know, and I'd be like, oh, well, that's not what we do, right? We, we help you raise funds and we help you build your infrastructure and build your distribution chain. And we help you with your celebrity agreements. And, you know, we eventually help you towards an exit. And people were like, oh, well, yeah, I need that, right? Like people, like the light bulb went off. Because as you were saying, Steve, most people, most entrepreneurs think of lawyers as pure, like sort of, you know, risk mitigators or people who sort of just tell you, you know, what you're doing, what you're doing right. wrong in terms of right. what you're yeah. doing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. as opposed to helping you sort of, you know, show you how to do it right and show you the best way to do it. And, and we realized, you know, we left that first show and, you know, like, I think, you know, you know we met, you know, like Vita Coco and Hint and, and Siggy's and, and Pirate's Booty and Pretzel Crisp and Happy Baby, Organic Baby Food and all, all these companies that will become clients and, you know, that we helped sort of from there grow and, and exit. And, you know, we realized that like, there was just a need and a want for people with like contextual sort of understanding of the industry that they were working in, right? Like, you know, there were somebody that understood what a bill back was, somebody that understood what a broker did versus a distributor and, and somebody who sort of understood the players in the area. And, you know, that's something that we've developed, you know, over the right. past you know, decades plus of, of working in this area. And I think, you know, and, it, and Steve, I still encounter it, like when I'll be at Expo West or Expo East, you know, I found it's like, well, look, you know, you're a lawyer. I know plenty of lawyers and, you know, I, I'm not getting sued and, and I know what I'm doing. And, and when I explain that, I, I get it. I mean, if, 
by the way, I don't go to I don't go to court. If you were getting sued, you wouldn't want me to defend you because I don't know what I'm doing. But you know, if you want someone who's got a contextual basis for your industry and who can apply the law to it and who can help you, you know, negotiate with the various parties that exist in CPG and who can help you level the playing field as as far as it turns to experience, then I'm the person you want, right? And, and I think that is important because you know CPG, Steve, is a great industry in, in the sense that you can sort of outsource everything. But the tough part about being an entrepreneur is that because everything's outsourced, when you go to a manufacturer, right? The manufacturer has had a thousand clients like you, and you've worked with maybe one manufacturer before or two, right? right. So when you're trying to figure out the relationship between the two of you, they're at the advantage, right? When you raise money from an investor, the investors invested in a thousand companies, and maybe you've maybe you've had a company before and taken in money from somebody, but maybe not, right? So the investors at the advantage because they've got more experience and so on and so forth. And you know, because we work with twelve hundred companies in this space of, of various sizes, and we've kind of worked across the table for everybody. We like to say that we we kind of level that experience playing field. But uh, yeah, I sort of came into you know, I, I came into CPG just through my own interests and through my sort of observations about where things were moving, I, I definitely wanted to do something that, you know, wasn't like commercial real estate law or, or trust estates where, you know, you were kind of fungible as an, an attorney and you kind of had to wait until you were, you know, in your sixties or seventies to become a subject matter expert. And, you know, this kind of presented itself and I absolutely love it. And I've been doing this since I graduated in 2007 and, you know, it, it's what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's a great, great, great niche and and a lot of need as as you've so eloquently expressed there. For most of the folks, I'll, I'll dial this back now down to sort of founders and, and, and startups. There's from a legal aspect, there's always, of course, regulation, local regulation. We talked to them about that or whatever. But when I'm doing workshops and starting out with folks where there's a wide variety of experience within the room some of the immediate questions I get are about trademarks and how important or unimportant trademarks are. So can you talk to me a little bit about where in the process you should begin considering doing that? How are the yep. ways to do it? And, and what does and doesn't it protect you from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, trademarks, I'd say, are probably, if you're a consumer-facing brand, they're one of the most important things or assets that you need to sort of secure. Now, like, look, I think your brand name, right, is something that you need to trademark. My suggestion is, is that, you know, if you're, I'll say this, you know, I've probably sold, I don't know, I think maybe I've sold one company ever in my whole career that didn't have the registered trademark for the name. And it was still a potential issue, right? Right. Everything else I work with, because it's consumer facing, and because you know consumer acceptance, and you know it is is and and your your sort of consumer base is the most important part. Having a trademark that's trademarkable, that's registrable, I think is super important. I don't look. I don't think it's fatal. I've seen you know we've seen companies you know we've seen Coconut Bliss you know, rebrand itself to Cosmic Bliss, right? Like people sort of change your brand name. It happens and, yeah, and there's still successes, right? But I would suggest from the get-go, if you've got an idea about a name, 
you have it searched by a trademark attorney. You you know you see if there's a, a potentiality for trademark infringement claims or whatnot, and you know you kind of get the thumbs up and the all clear on that brand before you launch it. The actual trademark process actually takes quite a while before you can get the registration. But if you can get a search up front and they, and they say, hey, look, you know, there's not anything that's going to be too likely for confusing. I think that clears you. That, that's, could you start your company without that? And can you file it later? You can. I think one of the issues is you might find that there's somebody with a competing trademark out there that you didn't know about that might make that difficult. Yeah. You can always change your name later. You can sort of rebrand. But I will say, like... Out of all the things, there's a number of things you can do from the get-go, right? Having your labels reviewed for like FTA, FTC compliance, having your trademark reviewed, you know, making sure you own your recipe. These are some of the things you can do at the get-go of starting your company that if you line them up and you get it all clear, as you grow, it's going to be an exponential benefit. And if you and if you and if you sort the issue in the beginning, you know what might be sort of a pretty easy fix, like right getting a sign off from your food formulator. You might be able to do relatively cheaply, as opposed to sort of later on once you're a bigger brand and you've established yourself, and and, and people know that like it's got real value to it. It's those three things you can do really set yourself up for sort of later success on down the road. And there are things that sort of a sophisticated investor when they come invest in you is going to say, look. Do they own their trademark? Do they own their recipe? You know, are their labels in compliance, right? Those are like three things any sort of investor that's kind of knows what they're doing is going to look into your company and, and want to make sure it's in place. And if you got all those things in place, you're going to show better to those folks. So, so from an IP protection, how do you own your recipe slash formula? Yes. Well, there's a couple of different ways. The main way is by a trade secret, right? So the Trade Secret Protection Act was passed uh, during the Obama administration, but it gave protection for things that aren't trademarkable, aren't really patentable, but that a company can show have intrinsic value and that they've taken steps to keep confidential. So like a great example of a trade secret would be like Coca-Cola's formula, right? There's probably no science to it, right? Anybody, uh, anybody could probably make it, but... You know, they've got it locked in a vault away somewhere and only three people see it. And they're probably under 20 million different NDAs. You don't need to go through those types of steps to protect your formula. But like what you do need to do is you need to make sure everybody who touches it agrees to keep it confidential and agrees that they can't use it and agrees that it's the company's. What you can also do to protect your recipe, Steve, is contractually you can protect it. And I do a lot of this in type in terms of my practice, right? What that means is that with your co-packer, with your formulator, with your suppliers, you can have agreements with them that one say, look, the, the recipe is the company's and it's not yours. Hey, any revisions or changes we make to that recipe belong to the company and not and not jointly between us. Right. Because yes. the recipe yeah. is right, the recipe to start with is not usually the recipe you end with, right? That's you right. usually tweak right. it over time, right? So, hey, any improvements we make. And then if, depending on the situation you're in, you know, you can do non-competes. You can say, hey, look, co-packer, you're making my product, you know my recipe. And so, and if people love this product, they're going to come to you. And so you're going to agree not to make a similar type product for other people. And that's going to create a competitive moat on your recipe, right? Because like, like anything else, you know, a recipe in terms of a trade secret, if you tweak it a little bit, right, 
it's a different recipe. You add a little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. You change yeah. incrementally. So if you got a non-compete and you know your manufacturer can't come out with something similar, it does prevent sort of similar type products from getting out into the industry and it creates it helps create that competitive moat for your for your product. Yeah. And better if you're trying to raise money too, because obviously it gives you something unique. You mentioned earlier on, of course, with co-manufacturers and co-packers, it's probably other than the commercial kitchen rental agreement is probably one of the first places that CPG founder and their team runs into a multi-page you know, document with all this stuff. And to your point, the co-packer has executed you know, a thousand of these, and you're looking at your first one, staring down the barrel of the gun. You guys, you know, do you, I mean, obviously I think you would, but would you support obviously having someone in a legal, with legal background or whatever on the team at that time? Where do you guys begin to come into the picture on a team with a prospective client? How does that all work? Yeah. I mean, for, for us, we get involved, like, you know, we've got companies, our representation of these brands, these 1200 something companies we work with, it's life cycle, right? We're life cycle council, you know, so we've, you know, we sold body armor for billions and we sold, you know, Orgain for a billion and we sold vital proteins for a billion, you know, and, and, and we work with those companies on the big deals, but but that's not where we start with those companies. We started with Body Armor when they were a couple million in revenues and Vital Proteins when they were a couple million in revenues. And we worked with them there and we worked with them all the way through all those rounds of financing, all that stuff. So we grow with companies. We get involved with companies pre-revenue if, if you know, if the, we like the product and we like the mm-hmm. team um, and we think there's a, a good relationship there. And, you know, co-pack agreements are oftentimes one of the first things people ask us to look at. Look, look, I'd say this. Because again, I'm a lawyer and I'm an expense, but like my goal is not finding companies to to take expense from. My goal is to find companies who are sort of long-term partners and who I can sort of help work through five or seven years through an exit. I don't want people to spend money where they don't have to. But if your co-packer is like a short-term stopgap, you know, and you can terminate it on 30 days notice and... Yeah. You know, it, it says uh, there's a good indemnity if that they if they screw your product up. I mean, take your chances, I guess, if you don't have the money to have someone look at it. But but if this is a long term asset, right? Regardless of what your what your budget is, if this is a long term co packer, and this is like the one place you can make your product, or like one of only a couple, and they want you to sign a long term agreement, get get a lawyer to look at it because it's going to be a cornerstone of your company. And if you sign a good deal, you know, that's great. But if you sign an okay deal or a bad deal, it could really hinder your growth, right? You might be dead in the water. So, you know, I I think from a legal perspective, that's what I would say everyone should do the analysis of, right? Is this potentially fatal to my business? And, you know, the, the thing is, Steve, like when you're smaller, almost every, like lots of things are almost fatal to your business, right? Because like, relative, you know, $100,000 issue could, could put you out of business sometimes when you're starting, you know, so fine. And look, you know, in terms of getting people to help you, you know, hire a lawyer, if it's someone, you know, that like me, that understands the business and can sort of help you navigate these, like the contract and help you give you an estimate of like, Hey, is, is, you know, asking for half payment up front and half and 30 days normal, 
or, or what's market for payment terms or what's market for these types of things. Yep. But it doesn't have to be me. Put some advice, find advisors, find people that like have done what you're doing and that you don't have a lot of education on, right? So find a find an advisor, you know, let's that knows about marketing if, if you got marketing, if you're not strong in marketing. Find an advisor that's strong in ops if you're not strong in ops. Find people that can help you navigate, you know, these issues that you're going to come up on. Because kind of up and down the line, there are so many hurdles that these brands come across when they're smaller that, you know, can that stop some people before they really get out the gate. Yeah. And and you know, going down the line, I mean, the the probably the biggest challenge for any successful brand is is having money, is having access to capital. You know, it's, it's just like numero uno. You can have a bad product, and if you got capital, you can stay in business for a while. But this idea, I I think you know, we call it scaling. And you know, what somebody asked me, you know, you know, what does scaling mean? I said, well, scaling is not two x to three x; it's two x to ten x or twenty. Right? It's the magnitude is such that most founders don't really have an idea about it. They're trying to fill orders. They're trying to be in whatever. And the weird way that the industry is built is that it's it's a pyramid standing on its top. So you yeah. go from 20 stores to right in a local area to you get your first order on a regional basis. It's 200 stores. And the next guy up is 2000. And it's yeah. like, wow. And that can go bam, 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 like in one six month period right? You can jump that far. And, and so yeah. there's all of this thing that then comes back around to, okay, I have to either find another co-packer or my co-packer has to expand or whatever else. What about in, in terms of, again, assistance where you guys have done stuff, let's talk about investors for a minute. I can see that investors would look more favorably <laughs> on a company that already kind of has their ducks in a row with you guys helping them out. I mean, that would be pretty obvious rather than, oh, we're sort of taking this on the fly and yes, we have our, you know, we have our liability insurance, but you know, whatever, how do you guys work with investment groups or people in terms of assisting with the process? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of, in terms of financings, I mean, I think we do, to be honest, I think we probably do more of that in this, in just CPG than anybody else out there. You know, I think we average about, we sell about 20 companies a year. We've averaged about like, 2 billion to 2.5 billion exit value past four or five years. Mm-hmm. Last year with the body armor deal, I think we ended up north of 10 in exit value. And then we do like 100, 200 rounds of financing a year. And they run the gamut from like $100 million rounds of financing to million dollar rounds of financing. Nice. And so so our, our perspective on the financings is like very from start to finish, right? And I'd say that, you know, we get involved, we help people, we help people formulate their sort of mousetrap, right? And I help people stress test their plan and I help people give them advice on their deck, but mostly I help them sort of, hey, look, let's talk about how much you're looking to raise and, and what you're thinking in terms of terms and help them structure it and help, you know, give them some advice on, well, look, look, especially when you're earlier on, right? Later, right. when you're later stage, when you're later stage, like you've got either a good grasp of what your value is or, or, like someone's going to come in and dig into the company and do the diligence and tell you what they think you're worth, right? Because there's going to be data and there's going to be history and there's going to be volumes of stuff and there's going to be comparables. Earlier on, you know, I tell people, look, you, you can't go to investors and I, and I coach them, you can't go to investors and, and say, what do you think I'm worth? Because they don't know. 
and they don't want to do the work to do it right? because there's not enough there. They want you to tell them what you're worth. And so what you need to do is you need to set up a plan and you see, say like, this is what we've done. This is the amount of money I'm raising. It's at this valuation. When I spend that money, I think we're going to be worth 2X the current valuation, right? Or whatever that is. And that's why it's a good deal for you. And that's what investors want. They want to be told and convinced why the current deal is a good deal for them if you if you if you sort of do your plan. So we help them, we help them sort of talk through that. We help them stress test that. We structure the deal. We put together the term sheet. You know, there are times where, you know, I have a network of people that always want to see things of every stage that sometimes they're at arm's length. But um, you know, usually then what we are is we're sort of like a great sounding board for investors, right? Investors, you know, yeah. they have questions about this. They have advice on certain things. You know, the, the early stage founder, like, you know, it, it's like if you want, you know, advice, ask for an investment. And if you want an investment, ask for advice type thing, right? So like a lot of a lot of time, you know, investors yeah. give a lot of advice and it really turns people, you know, circle because you try to do an equity deal and people want you to do, they say, oh, you should do a note. And if you try to do a note, they say, you should do a safe. And, you know, it's, it, and people, it spins their heads. So we help keep you sort of focused. We help keep you grounded. We help give you great reason, reasoned answers on, you know, why this is the right way to do what you're planning on doing and to accomplish your vision and, you know, why they should get on the train because it's leaving the station and, you know, the price is going right. to be twice as expensive the next station, yeah. right? Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, then we help negotiate the long form deal docs and we help circle of people and we help, you know, bring it in. And, and you know, we, that's like a, just the financings is in the MA is just a big part of our practice. And, you know, out of the 30 lawyers that we have, you know, all of them, what's, what's, what I love about our practice is all of the lawyers we have do the financings, the MA, and then they also, also do like all the day to day work. So, like, they do the celebrity endorsement and they'll do the co packing agreement, the distributor agreements. And so they understand like how they all, how they all sort of coalesce in the 360 yeah. degree view. So when you're putting together your disclosure schedules for your purchase agreement, they understand, oh, well, first, you know, either we have to add, you know, the buyout fees that might trigger upon a sale from the distributor agreement, or, you know, hey, if it's a company we haven't done all the deals for, they know how they know where to be looking to make sure that, you know, where things are. You know, in financings and later stage stuff, we do a lot of diagnostics. People bring us in either they haven't had lawyers much or they haven't had lawyers that like they'd say like really understood their industry. And I'll say, please come look at my company and go in there, diligence it and pick out, you know, point out to me where the sort of potential issues that might arise in diligence are. And we've done that plenty of times and we're able to sort of come in and clean up the stuff from the past, right? And go maybe renegotiate with that co-packer or get, hey, get a work made for hire signed from you know your 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 college roommate who helped you design your logo. And we're helping sort of <laughs> and we're, and we're able to sort of clean that up before before the press it's release really goes out that you just did the big deal and everybody sort of comes around, you know, with their hand out to you. So so let me ask you because you, you mentioned it, celebrity endorsements. So first of all, how's the world of celebrity endorsements these days? And do you guys, in that sense, I mean, I suppose it goes both ways. You have celebrities who become aware of a brand for some reason, and then they want to get involved. 
Yes. Maybe you have other ones that are brands that are going, you know, we could really use a celebrity to help us. How does, how does all that work? How does it usually work? What do, what do you guys do? So look, the world of celebrity brands is well and alive. You know, obviously Body Armor, you know, had Kobe Bryant involved with it and a number of people. The alcohol space is, is pretty vibrant with it. You know, like I think last year I helped launch Kevin Hart's new tequila, Graham Cormino that just launched and ASAP Rocky's Mercer and Prince whiskey along Post Malone's Rosé and, you know, a few others. Spirits World, you know, it definitely, it definitely still plays and, and those companies are selling and they're selling for big dollars. You know, I do find that like the world of celebrity endorsement plays a little less and gets a little less traction than the than the world of sort of really partnering with a brand, right? Like Jessica Alba and the Honest Company, yes. yep. right? Yep. Or you know she's at you know Expo West, right? And she's working the booth, right? Yep. We do a brand called Cali Water, which Vanessa Hutchins co-founded. And she was at Expo West and she was doing the booth and she's going to store checks and you know she's yep. she's on the phones with the distributors when they're calling that that sort of stuff really resonates not just for the consumer but the industry and i and i do find that it does open up a lot more doors you know when 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 that when that celebrity's really personally involved with the right. company right, right. Yeah. Um, and look the way those things come together is a couple different ways right one like you know it, it's a personal relationship right like cali water you got two friends who got together and decided that they, they wanted to do this. And that happens one way. Sometimes it's a partnership with another sort of conglomerate. It's like you know, a, a big partner who wants to do a, a JV for a brand, you know, that's got a really that 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 knows that the celebrity is going to be part of it. And then right. look, another time on the investment side, sometimes it's a reach out, sometimes it's outreach. You know, they reach out to the company. And they're involved and they're involved and they want to invest. And you know, I think like we I've done tons of financing deals where you get the deal, you get it led by the fund or whatever, and then the last you know million dollars or or whatever it ends up being, you fill in with some smaller celebrity investments and maybe they get some okay. extra equity in in order to sort of perform some services or whatnot. And then, you know, look, then there's a bunch of sort of service providers who, you know, it's their job to sort of help place celebrities or, or talk to celebrities. And, and then like, you know, you can always talk to like CIA or WME all have sort of divisions that are intended to right. like, like get deals for their celebrities on the consumer side, whether that's a, a paid deal or an equity deal or an investment kind of depends, you know, yeah, if you've they're, dealt, lo- they're looking as well. They're looking, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. it's very, very interesting, especially, you know, because so much of now disruptive CPG or new CPG is in fact mission-based or, right, you know, so so it's like, I'm, I want to do regenerative support, regenerative farming, so I'm yes. going to get involved in this because my dad was a farmer and, you know, and, and go forward, you know, with that kind of thing. So a lot of, a lot of opportunity there for sure. Is there, in terms of both... There's like a million ways those deals can come together. But do you see that there's probably a little more, maybe it's COVID, maybe it's just kind of the shift to more the mission base, but there's more interest in celebrity levels now of being involved with the food and beverage, whereas it used to be as a, hey, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. Or the standoff, right? Which is I'm going to put my name and I'm going to take five pictures of me and then I'm gone. Is it more involved now? Yeah, I think it's evolved a lot, right? 
you know, from the vitamin water days, which was more endorsement based, it's definitely become celebrities have become much more entrepreneurial in what they are willing to do, which I think has let really open the doors to partnering. And, and look, look, I mean, you look at like something like Skinny Girl, which, you know, David Kambar did with Bethany Frankel and, you know, Bethany Frankel was the whole marketing budget for that, right? Like yeah. for that, for that brand, you look at something like that, where you adding these celebrities, you can really get visibility and you can save money if, if your company's positioned to do that. And I think on the celebrity side, people become a lot more willing to look, I'll do equity. It's, it doesn't have to straight be a paid thing. You know, I'm open to doing equity. I'm open to sort of really yeah. get involved with the brand. So it's really added more opportunities for people that might not have like a $5 million, $10 million budget to pay someone to be a sort of a paid endorser, which, you know, to be honest, is what is that? Like that's it used to be the Cokes and the Pepsis and the Unilevers of the world were the only ones who could do that. Yeah, right. Um, now I think there's a lot more ways to access and, and the internet too, right? Well, I and mean, to the celebrity, it's it's a lot more cool to, to be with the hip disruptor brand than it is to just take a check from from Coke, even though obviously a lot of them still do it. But I mean, it's it's a different, slightly different positioning in that. Let me ask you about. Here's a new niche altogether, right? I want to know if you've done some of this, which is, I'm going to call it the refounder, which is Seth Goldman, John Sebastiani. You sell your brand, right? They run it into the ground and all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, I'll just buy this back or, or they'll sell it back to me and carry the paper. And, you know, whatever. so have you, have you worked with any of the groups that have gone on and sold and maybe had buyer's remorse or where the company that bought said, Hey, this doesn't really work in the portfolio. We're either going to trash it or give it back. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I represented John on his, you know, sale of Crave to Hershey, and we represented it on, on the on the purchase back as well. And 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 look, I mean, that's it, it is interesting, Steve. I, I think that's almost a sign of some of the times. I think you're starting to see how like bigger companies a couple of years ago were buying brands based on sort of top line growth and only, and they told themselves that they were really great at sort of taking a product that had a fan base and making it really profitable. Right. And that they could sort of maintain the magic and reduce the cogs and make a bigger margin. And you've seen over the past couple of years that, you know, the, the refounder or, or the resell, you know, the Zico's of the world. And, you know, you just saw Honest Tea, what Coke was doing with that and Adwala and, and a litany of other things in recent years is they're consolidating, right? They're, they're finding that, I think the bigger companies are finding that they're not as good at making profitable, you know, high, high sort of highly visible and highly desired brands. They're not as good as making as profitable as they thought they were. And I think what's that's translated to it's really more of a focus in the marketplace on fundamental sort of metrics and, and profit and a and a, a focus on profit. And, and I think that's trickled down from the big companies who want to buy brands, who are willing to buy brands later if they're more advanced and if they've proven profitability. And you find it in the investor world too. They're starting to look at and focus on profitability a lot earlier than you used to see. Yeah, um, they're, t- they're telling them to grow up. It's just saying, guys, guess what? <laughs> it's the things may get a little rough. You need to act more like a company now and not like an investment machine that we're going to keep this thing thing going. In in fairness, though, to to Hershey and to everybody involved, 
is at the time the deal happened in, in John, I, I was in Northern California at the time with my business. And so I know John and Paul and guys, I, I sat down kind of at a lunch with a guy one day and, and an investor. And we tried to figure out if Hershey's decided tomorrow that they wanted to go into on their own Hershey's beef jerky, what would it cost them to do? So in other words, development, okay, slotting, right? Which for Hershey would be premier slotting dollars, which they would just write a check for, blah, 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 all this, that, and the other. And you're going, it doesn't look like such a bad deal. (laughs) It would almost have cost Hershey's as much to get into the business as it did to buy an already established brand. So, okay, that's great. But now the ones that's in the portfolio, the problem is you want to reduce your cogs. You want to increase the efficiencies in your distribution. You want to, because that's how those companies make money. They don't make money off margin per unit. It's, you know, that's not how it works. So it comes back to this thing of, okay, I've now, I've kind of lost a little bit of the, little bit of the, the, the halo, if you will, for right from the product, because now it's owned by a big company. Yes, it's, it's everywhere now at every checkout counter. There's a piece of jerky hanging there. But the truth matters, I liked it better when I had to go find it. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing how that happens. But I, I, I do, I mean, there's some investors, I'm sure, or not investors, some founders who once that piece of paper was done, they were gone. But yep. there have been so many that have ended up back involved in some way with the brand or whatever. It's 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 interesting. And then what's going to happen to that? So what happens to Crave now? Where does Crave go? Or John, where? Or if someone, you know, again, Vita Coco, whatever. So same thing. What sort of what happens now? Now you're back in the scrappy. Hey, I all my distribution agreements, or you know, I got to re- go out and redo them and all that good stuff. So yeah, a, t- a, a tough thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, look. I'm, one other trend I think that has been caused by what we're talking about is that you're not seeing 100% purchases of businesses anymore. You know, businesses are getting purchased in steps. They're getting purchased in stages. You know, right. you're getting a Nestle that comes in and buys the majority stake and then buys the rest, you know, right. in a year or two years. And what that requires the company to do, the selling company to do, is keep its team in place, right? Because yep. You know, look, the magic, so much of that magic is that team, that founder, yep. the, you know, that, and, and that team that's been driving force behind it, in part because they're looking for that payday. So, you know, acquirers have sort of wisened up and they're buying companies in steps now. And, you know, they're requiring, you know, the founder and their team to stay on for a little bit. And that is like, that does raise problems with like integration, right? Because you're getting paid where you are now. But then you got to integrate for a year or two and you got to work within that system and you still got to sort of have an upswing and you got to have an increase in sales to get those second and third bites of the apple. Right. Um, You know, it it has for later stage companies, what they should be doing, in my opinion, is really when you get there and you're making money and you're profitable and and you're not as worried about what's in the bank anymore, start building your infrastructure out. You know, don't be so lean, right? Start building something that can communicate right? With one of these acquirers that can integrate into one of these choirs, start finding redundancy for the people that are absolutely out of there upon the sale. So you can keep chugging for that another year or two years or three years and, and get that, you know, get that last bite of the apple. But, but look, if you can do that, right. You know, the last 15% of the company you sell could be worth as much as the 60% that you sell on the first way out. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of upside there. Very interesting. Let me ask you real quick about CBD. 
tons and tons of CPG companies involved, tons of founders, and everybody thought there was this momentum in 2019. That was, I remember, you know, I was getting calls from PR people. Oh yeah, you got this guy on. He's got the best topical epic. And of course, then it all of a sudden, it just went dead with COVID. FDA, obviously no time for you. So whatever, what's kind of going on? Are you working with any guys? Are you, can you, anyone oh, yeah. can talk about to the, sure. where I, yeah, I, I work, maybe going to go? I work with a ton of CBD companies. Look, I think one of the difficulties for CBD food and beverage, right, has been that you're not taking the ingestibles into your Whole Foods and your Walmart and your Target. You've actually just started to see some of those, some of those move, some of those chains move. I still think CBD's got a lot of upside. I think that, you know, obviously it was sort of like the hottest ingredient 2018, 2019. You know, I, I do think that once it can go into broader accounts, like when people start to see it at Walmart and Target, you will start to see an upswing and you will start to see some of these businesses on the ingestible side build out, you know, good big businesses. I do think that, you know, in the in the world of sports, right? It's it's going to be something that's always going to be useful for sort of deal with sports inflammation and all and recovery and so forth. And without having the sort of efficacious effects of cannabis. And then look, I mean, I think, you know, I think cannabis, national legalization of cannabis, I think is going to be five years away, maybe, right? Like, I mean, yeah. it's, it's like every state, every year, a couple more states legalize it. At some point, you know, federal government's going to want the tax dollars. <laughs> so, it's going to be it's going to be a compelling argument that somebody's going to somebody's yeah. finally going to go for. It's amazing yeah. because all of the major retailers have plans in place for when that happens. Yes. You know, just but you got to get me over this. I can't have some local you know sheriff walking into my, our store and you know and arresting people. That you right? I mean, that that's the the, the thing you don't absolutely want to see. But yeah, there's, there's there should be something down the road. I think the other thing is interesting about that though is as, as the CBD itself and and the cannabis has become such commodity now that there are enough places where it can grow legally and it's basically okay. So who's going to be the efficient grower? Who's going to be the whatever? And you know, and I think that took a few people out of the you know, a few people out of the running when that happened too. But I can't I can't imagine that somebody like. American tobacco or whatever isn't going to have a it doesn't have a plan ready to go tomorrow when the you know the thing says everybody all do this everybody does you know and and it's almost I personally say it's almost starting to get comical <laughs> that, but yeah that we haven't gone and done it you know I'm at I'm I'm in Manhattan right now and you know they passed they legalized cannabis here but they haven't given out the licenses. And it's like, you see all these stores popping up that just say cannabis dispensary on them yeah. and people are just waiting and hoping they get the license. Right. Right. But, but I do think, you know, within the near term, you know, relatively near term, 10 years for sure. And, and maybe within five, right. you're going to see, you're going to see that legalization happen. And, and, and then look, the cannabis industry, which is, you know, been hampered by that, I think is going to explode. And I think the CBD industry is going to have a lot of sort of, you know, is going to get a lot of heft from that too. Yeah, it's gonna be gonna be fun. Well, hey, Sean, I really appreciate you know taking the time to to be with us today and talk about a lot of a lot of different topics and stuff. And so people who thought they were just gonna get a legal show, you know, get get something get something more. Where can they get more information on you and the firm? 
Sure. Yeah. Firm Genuzi Lewenden. Our website is w.glaw.us. You can find me, Ryan Lewenden, L-E-W-E-N-D-O-N. And on Instagram, you can find me on LinkedIn. My email is ryan, R-Y-A-N, at glaw.us. Feel free to shoot me an email. I'm happy to chat with anybody. I love CPG and would love to learn to know about you. <laughs> love to learn about to know about what you're doing. And that's awesome. And we will, we'll also put that in the notes and stuff in the postings for the, for the show segment of the show that we'd like to wrap up with is sharing with fellow entrepreneurs, a little bit of the wit and wisdom. We call it words to grow by, and it, it can be a word. It can be words. It can be a quote. It can be whatever kind of you carry around in your mind to share though with fellow entrepreneurs. You got something for us? Yeah. And this is what's on my mind right now just because of where we are right now. And this is what I'm telling a lot of people is just grow intentionally and cautiously over the next 12, 18, 24 months. I think that, look, we are in probably for some real economic turmoil and uncertainty. And I don't know if that's going to go three months or 36 months, but I do know that there's lots of benefits to be had in sort of what we're heading into. There's going to be lots of opportunities for shelf space, for better deals of manufacturing. There's going to be lots and lots of great people, employees, potential employees, and people in the workforce out there. But you want to not spread yourself too thin. You want to grow intentionally. You want to grow the right types of sales. And you want to don't get tied up on dilution too much. Take your money in, build yourself a little war chest, weather this storm. And the people that get on the other side of it and who stay there are going to be the best, best position to succeed. That's awesome. Great advice. Thank you, Sean. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, and Thanks so much for having me, Steve. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk, we'll talk about, about refounders and what they're doing. It'd be great. Absolutely. Love to. By right. the way, I appreciate you spending the time with us today and also appreciate everyone out there for joining us on the Next Level Brands podcast. Thanks as well to nextlevelbrands.com for production assistance. We are always grateful for feedback, any comments we get. If you have an idea for a show or a special guest, just reach out and let us know. I'm Steve Clear. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.